Welcome to Field Architecture. This is a podcast on architecture and the real world. My name is René Boer and I'm here with my Field Architecture fellows, Mark Minkian. Hey. And Charlie Clemens. Hey, yeah. Hi. We've got a new episode for you and we're actually using a bit of a new format here. So Mark, maybe you can tell us what is going on today. It's a very straightforward format, I would say. It's a, I had a long conversation for this, uh, for this episode with, uh, with Alexandra Lang. Right. And who's that? She is the architecture and design critic for Curbed. She also writes for places like uh, the New York Times and the New Yorker and for more architecture and design oriented publications like uh, Metropolis, Design, Places Journal. Um, I've been wanting to talk to her for a long time, also about her book, uh, Writing About Architecture, which came out, um, I think, in 2012. But now she has a new book out, which uh, was a good occasion to contact her and uh, invite her to the podcast. And what is it called? It's called The Design of Childhood, and it is about how different ideas about how to design objects and spaces for children influence their, uh, their growing up and, and um, either encourage or hamper their, their creative development and um, independence. Yeah. Hey, right. And don't, don't you have like a very specific memory of a specific piece of architecture from when you grew up? Um, well, it's funny that you mentioned because we, we do talk about it also in the, in the conversation. Um, actually, mine, well, you hear about it, mine is about uh, playing in, on construction sites, which is really sparks the imagination. Uh, at least it did to me when I was, when I was little. But uh, why don't I ask you guys? Charlie, what's your uh, like most vivid memory? Yeah, so I, um, when, when you asked me about this, um, an immediate memory came up. Uh, it was uh, an abandoned quarry near my friend's house. I would say it was probably um, around five or six when I would go and visit there, and we pretty much had the run of the place. Um, it's quite a vast landscape in my memory, and um, it had a river running through it. And we would have, you know, there were logs and rocks that we could kind of pick up. And I mean, the main the main aim of much of our play in that situation was building dams, um, hmm. like kind of creating a clay wall and out of logs and, and like the, the detritus and um, often overflowing and not quite understanding the physics of it. Um, I wouldn't know if it really had like a, a, a big impact on the, the way I kind of interact with the the built environment now but it, it I think these things are, are so sort of subtle aren't they you know they, they don't really have like such a kind of um direct feeling I think it's just a I mean I, I see a construction site and it's not something I'm scared of or something like that you know I don't mm. know if like um that resonates with either of you or yeah. if you've got like Rene yeah something similar or Yeah, I'm thinking of like this structure that I always used to encounter on uh, Amsterdam's museum plan, museum square. And it was basically, it's just like a few, um, it's a few steel slabs. Um, and it has like this very eerie sound and light installation. And I always used to be fascinated by it as a kid, or but also a bit scared. And only later I learned it was actually a, a World War II memorial, the Ravensbrück Memorial for the for women and the kids who died in, the, in that camp. But it's interesting how you first, as a, as a kid, you learn about it or you see the space and experience it. And only like, I don't know, five or 10 years later, you start to understand what the, what the meaning of it is. It's quite a dreamlike quality to it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Uh, yeah, so maybe maybe we should just start the episode. Or is there anything else that uh, you want to mention? Um, well, yeah, maybe it's good to mention the, the show notes because there are quite a few articles and books uh, and things that we refer to in the conversation. Right. And if you look at the show notes in your podcast app or on our website, then um, you can find the links uh, to the things that we're talking about. Great. Let's start, Let's start the episode. Yeah. All right, Alexandra Lang, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have a new book out. It's called uh, The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. And I would really like to talk to you about it. Uh, but before that, I also want to talk about your, your work more broadly. Um, maybe we can just start at the, at the beginning. Well, not that I won't ask you about your uh, childhood, however obvious that might be in relation to the book, but um, you started out studying architecture and literature at Yale. So it's almost like you set out to become an architecture critic. Yes, you know, but I, it's interesting to look back on your career, especially as a writer, and you realize that you could write the whole story of your life and make it seem inevitable. Um, and and you re I realize, you know, when I write profiles of people, that's what I do. I make it seem like all along the way they made the perfect decision that brought them to the next stage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I know that that's not, not, not the way I've experienced my life. But it's true in retrospect, I think I made some appropriate choices. I mean, this is, you know, a, a sort of strange thing to admit, but I, I already knew that architecture critics existed in high school. My mother gave me a book of the work of Ada Louise Huxtable, who is still a really important figure in my life. I only met her once, but I kind of made her into a mentor, you know, an imaginary mentor or avatar, which is really helpful for me. So already when I was in college, I was interested in criticism. I have a BA in architecture, so it's not a professional degree, but I was taking studio classes because I thought I might go to architecture school. But Yale also has this you know, long tradition of great architectural historians and great architecture critics. So I took lecture classes with Vincent Scully, who is this very you know, emotive architecture history professor. So I had it in my head that you could write about architecture in that way um, that's very emotional and really connects history and experienced. And so I feel like I was constantly filing these things away. And meanwhile, I was also an arts editor on the, um, the student newspaper there. And so that gave me a sense of kind of what you had to do to make it as a journalist, because there were all these very competitive people who were also editors at the paper. And they were like, oh, you have to get this internship and that internship, and you have to move to New York and all this. So I kind of absorbed all of this information. And then after college, I thought I was going to go to architecture school, but I wanted to take a little break. So I got a job as an editorial assistant at New York Magazine and moved to New York City and basically answer, answered the phones for a year. I mean, it was it was back in the days of just print journalism. Now I think people get opportunities to write much faster with blogs and people start their own blogs. Um, so they get to write. But I basically, you know, answered the phone and made lunch reservations and Xeroxed things for a year. 
um, which was somewhat humiliating at the time, but now I think it was probably a good experience. <laughs> and and what was the first um, the first piece about architecture that was published by you that you were really proud of? Well, I was recently going back into my archives, which are basically a giant f file drawer filled with <laughs> old magazines, because uh, you know we've been talking about. Me Too and, and the reckoning around um, architects' behavior. And I realized that one of the first major pieces I wrote um, that was a cover story for this magazine called Graphis that no longer exists was a profile of Richard Meyer. And I remembered somewhere back in my mind that he had been very patronizing to me. Um, and at the time, I think I was 24 or 25 And I've always been young looking. So I really, I, mu I must have turned up a, at his office looking just honestly like a little girl. And then he patronized me as if I were a little girl. So I wanted to find this profile and figure out what I had said, you know, had, had I gotten him back in some way in print. Uh, because that, that is the power of the writer. You know, people can say what they want, but you're, you're not just a mirror. You're also a lens and, you know, you can... You can say what you want after the fact. So I went back and found this profile, and I, and I feel like I had stuck it to him a little bit. Um, he kept talking about projects of him, his that hadn't gone forward in New York City, and he seemed very defensive about that, even though he'd just finished the Getty Museum. And, and I sort of pointed out that defensiveness, and I talked about the way that the office seemed to be structured around giving him this very white blank space so that, in fact, he, he didn't, you know, have to look at or interact with his employees. So all of this, with, you know, without too much pushing, seemed incredibly indicative of, of the, sort of spatially indicative of the behaviors that now we've seen and, and caused him to, you know, take a leave of absence for from his firm. So... I, I decided I, I made this the centerpiece of a new piece that I wrote about how we need to stop writing about architects in this sort of aggrandizing profile manner. Yeah, and that, that piece, that cover story for Graphist was one of the first times that an editor had read my work and reached out to me and said, you, like, I think you need an opportunity. Like, I, we want to give you more words. We want to give you this beautiful spread in a magazine. So I was really happy to go back and read that and feel proud of it and like, oh, yes, I, I took this opportunity and I ran with it. So this was your your big break in a way? I, yes. Yes, it was because the, the editor, Martin Peterson, who was then the editor at Graphis, um, subsequently became the editor at Metropolis Magazine. Um, and I was, you know, I, I was employed by New York Magazine, but New York Magazine doesn't always run so many architecture stories. For, so for a long time, I was writing more about architecture for Metropolis, which was a really fun magazine about all forms of design. And so I had a lot of opportunities there to work on my voice and meet people. And so it was great to have, you know, these kind of two tracks, like one one magazine sort of within the profession and then another magazine that was kind of outside the profession. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to I wanna, uh, talk about the, um, the article you just referred to, the end of the architect's profile in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but first, um, also about New York Magazine and uh, Metropolis. I seem to no have noticed a certain development in the types of media that you write for. So you started off at a, as a, at a more mainstream publication, New York Magazine, and then 
Um, you you wrote for more uh, architecture and design focused publications like the Architectural Record, The Zine, Metropolis, Places Journal, Icon, uh, many more. And then I think since about two years or maybe three, most of your work, I think 90% or even more, appears in either The New Yorker or on Curbed. So is this is this something you've thought about? Is that a deliberate um, move towards more like to, towards a wider audience that is not necessarily uh, design oriented? Well, I've always thought of my work as being written for a wide audience. Um, I don't, I feel like I always write the same way for whatever publication I'm working for. I mean, I'm not sure if the editors think that or if the editors even like that. But yeah, because um, I kind of came up through New York Magazine and I just, I sort of learned a lot of my journalism, even kind of slangy, you know, <laughs> journalism cliches at New York Magazine. I always feel like I had this idea about making it, you know, fun and fresh and I never wanted to write academically. Um, I was very happy to leave architectural theory behind. I felt like there, you know, there was a way to write about design and architecture where you're talking about the experience, you're talking about the visuals, and that I felt like should translate across audiences. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I've had a lot more opportunities from the design press just because, um, you know, <laughs> there are entire publications about design. Um, and my editor at Curbed, Kelsey Keith, is just so great about, um, you know, just taking a one sentence idea that I have like that the piece on the architect profile you know I'll just email her or, or slack her and say I think I think it's the end of the architect profile and she's like yeah that sounds like a story <laughs> so it's really I feel like I've had many more opportunities like that where I don't have to prove myself where people you know know what I can do and understand that that one sentence that you know there's this world of things connected to that one sentence So I love that. And then I have found a very sympathetic editor at The New Yorker, primarily at the the culture desk, sort of the online culture website, Michael Agar at The New Yorker. And he also, I feel like, believe, you know, believes that I can pull it off, believes that when I say, oh, I should write a profile of Susan Kerr who designed the Mac icons, um, you know, like that's a good story. And that story actually did really well for them. Everyone was like, whoa, this woman designed the Mac icon. So it's like, <laughs> great. Like, I mean, and, and what I want always is for, you know, more people to understand how design is affecting their lives. I mean, I, I think that's really why most of us are doing this and you can bring in history and you can bring in all sorts of other things. And so, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't have any mainstream media sort of in in my list of clips because um, I see myself as somebody who writes about design and architecture, but but I'm not part of the profession. You know, I'm you know I'm not an architect, and I'm not here to aggrandize the profession. I'm here to talk about the the products of the profession and which ones I think really count. Before we go back to Mark and Alexandra and their conversation, uh, I'd like to remind listeners, if you're enjoying the Failed Architecture podcast so far, that we need your support. Uh, the 
failed architecture project is uh, dependent on many, many hours of unpaid labor. Uh, we would like to be able to spend a lot more time on it and produce a lot more content. Um, if you if you have money spare, we would uh, dearly like you to visit the Feral Architecture website, go to the support page. There's a yellow ribbon at the bottom of most pages and give whatever you can afford. Now, back to the episode. I want to ask you something about The New Yorker. Specifically about one piece, because you did the uh, you did a profile about uh, Adrian Geuze, who is a um, founder and partner at West Eight, a landscape architecture firm. They did the redesign of Governors Island in New York, I think about two or three years ago, and you produced a very very big piece on um, on his work on the redevelopment of Governors Island. Um, it's also about the history of, of landscape architecture. So this is, this is really long-form journalism. And I, I was just curious to, um, to hear about how such a, such a piece comes about, because there's, you've traveled the world to go and see their uh, West AIDS projects, um, talk to a lot of people, and then you end up writing a piece that's, that's more than 6,000 words. So how does that come about. How does that happen? Yeah. So I'd been writing online for The New Yorker for some time. And a lot of people don't realize writing online for The New Yorker is very different than writing a piece for the magazine. You know, The New Yorker famously has all these fact checkers and all these layers of editing. And it's not really like that for online. So it is it is a big deal and sort of a hurdle to cross to um, pitch a piece for print and get them to sign off on it. So I had been pitching various ideas kind of with um, my online editor, Michael, um, to this other editor at the magazine, Daniel Zaleski, um, who's well-known in architecture circles for writing an absolutely amazing profile of Rem Coolhouse some years ago. It's like one of the best architect profiles they've ever read. I love it. It's kind of hilarious. So I had been pitching ideas to them, and they said, okay, you know, who are some architects you'd like to profile? And I said, you know, I think the biggest news in architecture today is landscape architecture. I feel like that's where the really interesting work is happening. That's who is changing cities. I'm not really interested in condo buildings and office buildings. I just, I feel like they're fine, but you know, what are they doing for the public? So I think you should do a story about a landscape architect and they seem to buy that argument, which is great. And I had already written about Governor's Island right when they had the competition. I think it was, um, yeah, they had a competition for Governor's Island in 2007. I remember because I, <laughs> I was pregnant with my son and it was like the last story I wrote before I went off to have a baby. Um, and and that it was basically a who's who of landscape architecture, you know, field operations, Michael Hargraves, West State, um, and West State won it. So I I had already I already had this idea of Governor's Island, which is this you know island off the southern end of Manhattan. It's you can reach it by ferry in seven minutes. It's it's like what an amazing project! Like what an amazing thing to have in your hands. And I knew, and I had visited it over the summer, so I knew that West Eight was doing some big things. They were building hills on Governor's Island, and just I, I felt like that. I mean, and so that became the core of my pitch. Like these 
these Dutch architects that you've never heard of um, are building hills on this flat island in the middle of New York Harbor. Like, you know, what's not to love about that? And and they bought it. Um, so then um, I think I think I first met with Adrian in so sort of September of the year before the architect the article came out, and it came out the following May. So that gives you a little bit of sense mm-hmm. of the time that these things take. So I met with him, and I interviewed him, and so I sort of took that interview back to my editors and said, look, he has all these really interesting ideas about space and freedom and kind of what, what landscape architecture is supposed to offer to the city. And um, I don't know if you've met Adrian, but he has – this sort of really hilarious way of talking. It's very staccato. A a lot of architects now, I feel like, have had media training and they're incredibly smooth. And he's not like that at all. He'll start talking about some weird bit of history or, you know, start talking about Erasmus or something like that. And you're thinking, how is he going to bring this around? And then he always does. And you're like, oh, okay. So by the end, you're nodding. So he did that. (laughs) He did that whole thing for me on Governor's Island you know, with the birds chirping, with the grasses growing. And so I could kind of see what it was going to be like. I could see the future of the island, which is, you know, a difficult thing when you write about landscape architecture. It takes so long to make it happen. So I took that back to my editors and I said, yes, I think this project is great. I think it's going to be a big deal for New York. I think he is an interesting guy. Um, so let's do it. And then and then they said, okay, so you know, where will you need to go to do this story? And I said, okay, I'm going to need to go to his office in Rotterdam and see some of his projects there. And then I said, the other project that is really important that everyone tells me is actually his best project is the Madrid Rio in Madrid. Um, and I don't know if you've been there, but it is yes. pretty incredible. It's this riverfront park and it totally, you know, knits together the city, is transformative, has all these kind of spectacular art and architecture moments. I mean, that that was really my favorite thing that I got to do for the art article was to go with Adrian and his wife to Madrid Rio and bike along Madrid Rio for hours like that. I mean, yeah, that's the dream. That was so great. And I, I know that comes across in the story because there's this moment where there's kind of um, the journalist pause, and then there we are on bikes in Madrid, and it's kind of like, yes, you want to have this experience too. Like that's what landscape architecture can give you. So I did all those things, and then I said, okay, I'm ready, and I started writing. And then I wrote just many, many words, you know, far far more words than um, you would think anyone would read. And originally, I think the article was supposed to be about 4,000 words, which is like an average profile. But mm-hmm. they liked all those words enough to say, okay, we'll go to 6,000, but, you know, <laughs> but no more. And so then, you know, there's a long uh, process of, of revision and all of that. But that, that really wasn't that bad. I mean, I, I have been writing for a long time, and I know how to structure an article. So even though I, I was terrified in my heart just because – because it is a big deal for any for a journalist to have a story in the New Yorker. I feel like the process was relatively smooth in the sense that you know n- nobody ever made me cry internally or anything like that. Um, w- <laughs> once we launched on the project, they they believed in it too, and it all went well. Right, yeah. Because one of the podcasts that I that I listen to a lot is uh, long form, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people are being interviewed who also write for the New Yorker and I had the impression that the New Yorker does very heavy editing. Yeah, I mean they do, but I guess to me I didn't feel 
I don't know, manhandled or whatever you want to call it. I felt like they stuck with my organization and it still sounded like me. And, you know, they would say, go back for a better quote or do you have a better quote and things like that. But I, I didn't feel like they took it over. I mean, I definitely, when I was writing for New York Magazine and I was younger, there were definitely times when the, the piece that was published was not, you know, was not the one I turned in. And I felt sort of ashamed by that, you know, th that I had failed. And also sometimes I didn't agree with the choices that the editors made, but I didn't feel like I was in a position to object. I actually wrote a piece for the New York Times magazine T, like their design magazine a few years ago. And the, the lead on it, you know, the opening paragraphs were rewritten heavily by the editor. And I, and I don't like them. And I probably shouldn't say mm -hmm. this out loud, but I don't care because I really, it, it's just, it's not a lead that I ever would have written. It's about Philip Johnson and what a splash the glass has made. I do remember it because I just, I felt like, you know, I felt like the bottom two thirds of the article were my article and what I wanted to say. But I, you know, I think part of what I didn't like about it is I like the work to speak for itself, both my work and the work of the designer that I'm talking about. And I don't like having to kind of pump it up with all these words like best or most incredible or, you know, made a splash. And I feel like they're these kind of cue words that are supposed to tell the audience that something's important. And I just I feel like there can be something kind of cheap about that. And it stems from a belief that your audience is not going to believe that this is important, like, unless you dress it up that way. And that is not what, <laughs> that's not what I believe. I don't think you need to pump up Philip Johnson's glass house. No, <laughs> uh, no, I agree. Um, I, let's go back to, to the Adrian Geuze uh, piece mm -hmm. for The New Yorker, and then to a piece that you wrote just recently for, for Curbed, uh, that I already mentioned, The End of the Architect Profile, yeah. in which you argue that we should end the myth of the, of the solitary design genius. And in this piece, you also say that you struggled with the ambivalence towards, towards the form of the, of the architect profile uh, when you did the piece on, on Adrian Geuze on Governor's Island. Could you say something about that, that struggle? Sure. Yes. No, I understand, there. I understand there's an internal contradiction there. Yeah, well, the way that a magazine like The New Yorker talks about architecture is almost always in the form of a profile. They, you know, they, they used to, for a long time, they had an architecture critic. Louis Mumford, whose work I admire very much, was their first architecture critic. Paul Goldberger did it for many years. And so in those stories, you could talk, the critic could talk about a work um, and, and sort of, you know, the man, because it's mostly a man, didn't have to be the primary um, mover in those pieces. But now they don't have an architecture critic for the print magazine. And so the way the architecture appears is in the form of a profile. And there are obviously different ways to do a profile. You know, some of them are more focused on the person and some of them are more focused on the work. And, and as I said in, in that article, um, you know, there was recently a profile by Ian Parker of Thomas Heatherwick in which Heatherwick sort of doesn't appear or doesn't appear as often as he might. And I think that's a great example of how to do a critical profile. You know, I as a first time profile writer for, for The New Yorker would not have felt confident enough to do that, I have to say. But I know when I was writing my profile, you know, yes, it's about 
Adrian, yes, it's about West 8, but I tried, I tried to frame it in such a way so that I made the point that I kind of started the whole process with that landscape architecture was important and that there were other people also doing this excellent landscape architecture that was transforming cities. And, you know, I'm not sure if that completely comes across because, yes, it is still a profile of one man. But I, that, that's what I had to tell myself because, you know, the New Yorker had never really written about landscape architecture at all, and that seemed to be a shame. And so it seemed worthwhile. But, yeah, no, I, since I wrote that piece, I keep thinking, does that mean I can never write an architect profile? Or I feel like I, feel like I could still write about somebody's work or the work of a firm, but I would, just, I would really want to make it about the work. Um, you know, in in an issue a couple of weeks ago of The New Yorker, um, Zadie Smith wrote about um, a photographer. And she clearly, I, I can't remember the photographer's name right now, and she clearly interviewed the photographer and spent time with her and, and talks a little bit about her family. But mostly it's it's Zadie Smith talking really eloquently and interestingly and with all of her skills about the work. And I'm like, okay, well, like that kind of profile we can live with because that's about the result and how it makes the audience feel and kind of what it's doing in the history of photography and portraiture. So it, it's not no profiles. It's it's where is the emphasis on the profile and yeah. taking it off the individual and their personal life and whether they're good looking and <laughs> all of this other stuff. Yeah, so it's less of a per- like this personality cult. Right, right. It's not treating the architect as if they also have to be a movie star because they don't. I mean, we know they don't because all the architects that we actually know aren't like movie stars. No. So, you know, it's just this like 0.05% of architects who, who can deliver that. And why, you know, why do they get to be the famous ones? Like, you know, why are they the ones that are rewarded? I want to talk about Curbed also for a little bit, because you started working as a Curbed architecture critic around three years ago. I think we should say or define what Curbed is, um, or try to, because it's uh, mostly US-centered. Um, I mean, the, the articles reach me, or reach us, reach us here uh, in Europe as well, but it's mostly uh, US-centered. Their tagline is love where you live and improve it all the time. It publishes about homes, about furniture, about real estate. There's also these million dollar villa um, <laughs> like listings um, yeah. on there. But it's also about urban issues and about architecture. Where, where, where do you see Curbed in the, in the media landscape? Well, Curbed started quite a while ago as mostly a real estate website. But it you know opened branches in different cities and a few years ago, when Kelsey Keith took over, they created a, a Curb National site, and that's where my work lives. And they also started; she also started a features program, so long-form stories on urban issues. So the idea was really to take kind of take the bones of this real estate site and say, like, okay, like, what are we really talking about when we talk about real estate? We're talking about our homes. We have to furnish those homes. We're talking about our homes, you know, who made these homes. We're talking about our homes, like, how do we get to and from those homes? So to take this platform that was successful as a business and turn it into something that was also 
I don't know, more of an intellectual project and a critical project. And so all of those things coexist within the curbed ecosystem. You know, there's a there's a more complicated blog structure that nobody's really <laughs> interested in, except if you're in the business. Um, and so as one of those symbols that curbed um, was kind of maturing and wanted to invest in kind of a broader journalistic profile, um, Kelsey thought the curb should have an architecture critic, and she asked me to do it, which is great because I know it's a little bit different in Europe, but in the U.S. traditionally, architecture critics have all worked for major metropolitan newspapers, and, and there's been kind of like that one way that you were an architecture critic. And then The New Yorker and New York Magazine had architecture critics. So those were a rare exception. You know, New York had more, more than other cities. But to say, okay, you know, we're part of new media, we're a blog, but, you know, we can also have an architecture critic. We are part of this conversation, I think is really important. And what I love about it is just I have – so much freedom, you know, sometimes too much freedom, but I don't have to limit myself to one city. Um, you know, I recently wrote a piece about the Obama Center in Chicago just because, you know, I read all the same architecture media as everyone else. And I just kept seeing the same renderings and seeing the same photos. And I was like, what is going on with this? And because I write for a national website, I can say, okay, I'm going to write about something in Chicago. And that's great because, I don't know, sometimes New York City architecture is really dominated by condos and new office buildings, and I don't particularly want to write about every single one of those. Yeah, because at, at, um, at Curb, you, you write about a, a wide range of topics. I mean, you write about exhibitions, <laughs> about new buildings, about old buildings worth preserving, um, about book design, about scissors. Is that... Do you feel like you have a, a, some sort of an agenda at, uh, at Curbed? Do I have an agenda? I mean, it's funny when you list all those things because uh, sometimes I think that maybe I could do more good if I were more focused. But I feel like that, I don't know, in some way, lack of focus is just a reflection of my mind. I, I get bored very easily, and I am actually interested in everything from scissors to presidential libraries to, you know, urban planning. So I think I would feel very stale if I kind of kept on the same topic. So I appreciate having editors and, and a website that covers things at all of those scales so that it, it makes sense in some way for me to write about all these different things. I mean, I do think I have an agenda. Sometimes um, I know that my work isn't overtly political, but I think that in general it has a soft politics about architecture and design needing to be accessible to the greatest number. And I, I tend not to write about things that are private, that, you know, that I don't think have tentacles out into the public world. So, I mean, you know, the, the scissors piece is kind of a funny example because that 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 was more, you know, my social media life where I'm sitting around on a Saturday and I can't find my good scissors and I start asking people on Twitter, you know, if if you were in my house, where would like if you were my child, where would you have hidden the scissors in my house? And then I, you know, people write back and they're like, "Oh, the scissors, my mother always kept her scissors XYZ." And I'm like, "Oh, you know, there's actually something here." you know, kind of a truth about how we live in our homes about scissors. And so then I'll write about scissors because it's, you know, it's it's not just the object. It's actually about how we live, 
I think it's partially a woman's story about, you know, how you organize your house and, and mm. kind of passing down the good scissors from, you know, mother to daughter or grandmother to daughter. So I felt like there was actually a story in something that sounded kind of silly. And that, and that maybe goes back to the tagline, love where you live. You know, everyone deserves to have a nice sharp pair of scissors in their house because it is actually going to make your life better. So, yeah, I think I never want people to think that, you know, architecture is only for rich people or that it's not connected to their lives. And I think that's, I mean, that's another reason why I've embraced landscape architecture, which is just not something that I feel like was ever talked about in my education. But I feel like, the you know, the world needed landscape architecture to step up, particularly in cities. And, you know, brownfields and former industrial areas provided this opportunity for land to be remediated and given back to the public over the last 20 years. And that was a great opportunity and that, you know, it needed design. Um, So to me, that was a perfect topic. And we've been in a little bit of a fallow period with new parks, but I'm hoping that there's going to be kind of the the second generation of landscape architecture for cities, and and that's going to be really fun to write about. When we talk about um, your agenda, I think something I notice and something I like is that you write a lot about female designers whose whose work or lives have been have haven't received the attention that they deserved. Is that is that something you deliberately do? Oh, definitely. Um, that I come by very naturally because my mother is actually a graphic designer and graphic design historian. And she wrote a book about C.P. Pinellas, who was a pioneering modernist female graphic designer um, who was overlooked. Um, and she, about 20 years ago, she wrote this essay about C.P. Pinellas called The Tenth Pioneer because there had been um, – Uh, there had been a book published called The Nine Pioneers of American Graphic Design, and C.P. Pinellas had actually been married to two of the nine pioneers who were all men. And my mother, I think, woke up one morning and got so angry <laughs> that this book had not included C.P. Pinellas that she wrote this article called The Tenth Pioneer, and then she wrote a monograph on C.P. Pinellas. And I feel like, you know, that was my mom's agenda, and she just, you know, like handed that agenda over to me. So, yeah, so that, you know, that's why, that's what I I am doing. And it's, it's fascinating to me how you don't need to go very far beneath the surface of design, and particularly American design, to find women. You just have to kind of, in some cases, define success a little differently and also say, um, as in the recent case of something like the Union Carbide Building, which is a Skidmore Owings and Merrill building that's usually attributed to Gordon Bunshaft, but the chief designer on his team was this woman, Natalie Deploy. So it's like we only we only have to add one more name and, le- like, boom, there's a woman who designed – you know, three or four of the most beautiful mid-century skyscrapers in New York City. So it, it, it's not even that hard if you're looking. Yeah. So do you think that our um, architecture and design media are not doing enough to um, to focus on on women in the in the industry or uh, to address gender roles? Well, I think they're starting to, or really, I should say, they're starting again to, because one of the things I've learned in some of my historical research is that. 
that we, we already had this discussion about women in architecture in the mid-1990s, which is actually when I um, graduated from college. And Susanna Torrey and some other women published books on this and articles on this. And Denise Scott Brown wrote some very sort of rightfully angry things about how she was being ignored in the 1990s. And so the fact that there's this kind of 20-year period in which it felt like nothing changed is incredibly frustrating. And I'm hoping that this time there will be change. I mean, you do see, you see, you know, more firms headed by couples, more firms headed by women and all of this. But you still see women dropping out of architecture, mostly in their mid-30s when they have children. And unless the profession kind of restructures the way it thinks about like what a good worker is and what a healthy work environment is, I don't see how we're going to get you know, the 50-50 representation that we have in schools and then that 50-50 representation will then improve architecture. Architecture media will then will have a better profession to mirror. I mean, some of it is selection on the part of editors, but some of you know the lack of representation of women in architecture media is a reflection of, of just kind of the larger atmosphere and the numbers that are out there and the opportunities that are offered to women. So it's a complicated thing, but I hope that we've reached enough of a frustration point and it's public enough so that things will actually change now. And I also hope that some of the parts of the architecture profession that have historically been more accommodating of women like interior design will be taken as seriously as they should be because that's the other thing. It's like there are parts of architecture where women have gone to because they could work more easily and have more autonomy, but then those aren't those aren't skyscrapers, and so you know the way that sort of awards have traditionally been handed out hasn't necessarily awarded those women. Yeah, I think this is a this is a, a good point and a conversation to move to your new book, the design of childhood. I the way I would uh, summarize the book is that it is um, that it is a history of the cultural ideas about how kids should learn, play, and live, and how these have influenced the design of toys, homes, schools, playgrounds, and um, the city as a whole. So it's a, it's a, it's a historical document, it's, it's design history, but it's also, uh, it also takes into account the social and political realities of these developments, and, and related to what we were just talking about. Am I right when I say that this book is just as much of a a uh, critical assessment of the of the position of women in society as it is about the design of childhood <laughs> yeah yes i think you are right yeah because who is handing the toy to the child you know 90% of the time throughout history it was a woman so so yes when you're writing about childhood you are writing about women as mothers as teachers as caregivers. I didn't initially conceive it as a feminist project, but it is definitely a feminist project. And as I went through history, I found many other women thinking about what it means to be a mother in terms of space and trying to 
keep that space from being a single-family isolated home in the suburbs. Um, there are these – Dolores Hayden, who is somebody that I studied with at Yale, has written these amazing books about the materialist feminists who tried to start you know, housework collectives in Cambridge um, in the early part of the 20th century or um, thought that we should all be able to get food from communal kitchens. And that as somebody who kind of hates making dinner every night, <laughs> the idea of having a communal kitchen is so amazing. And the fact that, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, they already saw that as something like as a quote-unquote disruptive technology that could, you know, change family life. Um, was so fascinating. And I feel like it, to me, it seemed like because childhood is fleeting, though it is of utmost importance, it hadn't been treated as a serious topic because it was as if people were interested in it and then their children grew up and then they, they forgot about it and kind of never went back. And so it was great to you know spend the time taking things like toys and, and classrooms and desks seriously um, and really thinking about what they were doing because the um, the data from education, the data from child psychology indicates that, you know, it's not even the first 12 years of children's lives that are the most important, but maybe even the first three years of children's lives. So, you know, what what are children doing and where are they doing it in those three years is vitally important. And design is a big part of that. I mean, the, that's the most tactile part of your whole life. So the idea the idea that design isn't affecting you in every way when your age is one to three is just, you know, this is wrong. It's just kind of crazy. You, you've done a lot of a lot of research. I think you've read hundreds of publications. You've done a ton of interviews and visited many places. Um, and the, the topics range from, you know, from Minecraft education to uh, school architecture. And like you said, it's a, it's, it's a book about desks as well. It's about playrooms, about playgrounds, but also about urban design and, and maybe you could call it community design even. What, what was the most fun part um, <laughs> about doing research for this book? Um, I think the most fun part was probably the playgrounds. And I think that's also the part that a lot of people already know I was interested in because I would go to playgrounds and post lots of photos of playgrounds on Twitter and talk about playgrounds. So for for whatever reason, different playgrounds designs really captured my imagination. And then there were a lot of great figures who were also interested in playground design. And Aldo van Eyck is one of them who did yes. you know, 700 playgrounds in Amsterdam. It just blows my mind. I just cycled past one of his yeah. uh, See, that's uh, great. igloos. Right. And I feel like the designers of playground. well, I feel like a lot of the designers I talked about, if the successful ones really took time to watch children at play. And playgrounds are one of the best places where, you know, anyone can watch children at play. And watching children play is incredibly joyful. And you get to be outside and you see them, you know, using their bodies and playing pretend and all of this. And you know, to me, that's kind of a utopian experience. And I feel like Aldo van Eyck must have had that experience and then tried to make, you know, kind of the most minimal moves possible to give children, you know, something to climb on, something to dig in. I actually, I mean, it, 
as you know, like his his playgrounds in Amsterdam, each one is different, but he had this kind of kit of parts um, of, you know, concrete toadstools and, and climbing frames and igloos that he invented. And I really, I, I have this vision in my mind to do um, kind of a, an animated short documentary called Aldo and the 700 Playgrounds in which you could actually kind of animate him arranging and rearranging these elements on the different sites for, you know, 10 different playgrounds, because I feel like in my head, I could already kind of see him doing that. I mean, when I really like a designer, I try to, I I make up a little fiction for myself Mm -hmm. and kind of mind meld. So I can see this in my head and I feel like I want other people to see it just to kind of understand the design process and, and how you could possibly make 700 playgrounds. And I think that would be really beautiful. I also had this amazing experience of going to see this Isamo Noguchi playground in Sapporo in Japan, Moranuma, that really felt to me like it was at the ends of the earth. It was quite a journey to get there. And then there happened to be nobody else there that day. So I had to, <laughs> I had to play in the playground by myself. Um, and that was just the kind of, that was a really interesting experience about you know, trying to put myself back in a child's shoes and just think about how the different elements made you feel and like kind of what they did to your body. And yeah, and, and I, I hope my book convinces more people to go there. It is really popular in the summer. I just didn't happen to be there in the summer. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The playgrounds gave me a lot of joy. <laughs> I think it's, I think personally for me, it's also the the part of the book that speaks to the imagination. Uh, mm. Most yeah. probably also because, you know, you'd start thinking of your own experiences. Uh, I think my best memories were um, about playing on construction sites because there, mm-hmm. there are these unscripted spaces where you can just, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of room for imagination and, well, they're off limits, but uh, it's that <laughs> they're great spaces to play. And I, yeah, I remember... Um, because you also write about adventure playgrounds and junk yeah, yeah. playgrounds in a kind of um, genealogy of, of playgrounds, starting from uh, just piles of sand to uh, playgrounds, about, I think, about a, a century ago, which we today would describe as fucking dangerous. Yes. Right? And then <laughs> yeah, totally. There are these with, with very high... Um, installations and moving parts and yeah well an an interesting amount of risk designed in and then there's these post-war junk playgrounds and adventure playgrounds which are more about anarchy and freedom for kids to create their own space and then everything goes downhill from the from the (laughs) 80s right yes yeah the 80s were a dark time, at least in the U.S., I think, um, for children's freedom. And that was one of the interesting things about the book was, you know, I, I wrote it after I had children. And so it was in some ways sparked by my own children and my experience as a mother. But I ended up learning a lot about my experience as a child, kind of gaining this historical and cultural context for my experience as a child, because I grew up in the 1970s. And so I thought of that as, quote unquote, normal. But researching the book allowed me to see that the 70s were actually this amazing period of freedom kind of, you know, built built on the whole Earth catalog and kind of late 60s anarchy and interest in, you know, unisex kids clothing and cooperatives and all of this and all of the, so 
so that, you know, that definitely altered my mind. Like that definitely like made me a free thinker and a critic. But then it all comes to this sort of screeching halt in the 80s um, with educational reforms, with lawsuits over playground design. So, you know, no more 10 foot high monkey bars over blacktop, which, you know, is probably just as well. But of course, the reaction is always, you know, kind of more violent than it needs to be. Like things are dialed back further than they need to be. And then I do feel like now, hopefully we're coming out of that kind of 1980s retrenchment now and beginning to see that we've gone too far and taken too much freedom away from children. And it's actually, it's great that you bring up construction sites and the junk playgrounds because that's, a I don't know, in some ways the playgrounds chapter is interesting because they are kind of these alternate branches of playground design. And I think each of them leads to a different kind of freedom. And I, when I was writing that chapter, I felt like, oh, in the end, I'm going to have to say that like junk playgrounds are the way or, you know, abstract Noguchi and sort of Van guess playgrounds are the way. And I can't, I personally cannot really decide between them. <laughs> I think they're both, <laughs> they're both good. But I do think that the junk playground, which is still much more prevalent in Europe, um, you know, they didn't all go away in Europe. And I, I think in Germany, especially, there are lots of them. Um, and, and they're also in Japan. I visited some in Japan. For the U.S. to start a junk playground movement, like a connected junk playground movement, is something that I can see happening. And I hope in some way my book could help to happen because I talk to people in a lot of different cities that have junk playgrounds. And I feel like to define that as a kind of civil rights issue for children, that they they should be able to build their own playgrounds, that they should be able to learn how to use tools, they should be able to make their own fun, even if they don't live in a forest, is a really important thing. And I think I think that could happen, but it needs organization. It probably needs a foundation to support kind of starting, you know, 10 junk playgrounds in 10 cities um, and see what happens. I remember one, there was a video at the, at the Venice Biennale two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. From I think it was done by Assemble, made by Assemble. Yeah, yeah. The, Assemble uh, is. I've talked to Assemble. They're very interested in this topic, and they they built an adventure playground in I think in Glasgow, hmm. the Baltic Street Adventure Playground, um, as part of one of their art experiences, which is interesting in as in and of itself that like the junk playground becomes part of an art and architecture practice. Exactly. Yeah, it was mesmerizing to, to to watch this video. I think they they recorded also in several junk playgrounds in Europe, but also one in in Japan. And it it was the only thing in the Venice Biennale that I gave my full attention. I just couldn't couldn't walk away from it. And well, my feeling is after after reading the 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 playground chapter is that maybe the biggest challenge is also for. I don't know for parents, for for planners, and for other citizens to to overcome a certain fear of risk um, when it comes to creating spaces for children. Do you agree? Yes. No. Absolutely. I talk a little bit about the research, the sort of research in child psychology that talks about how children need to be exposed to risk to learn how to deal with it. If they if they're never exposed to risk. I mean, they're actually physical consequences. Like they, they don't learn how to climb up steps that aren't regular or, or to climb across monkey bars. But also psychologically, they don't, it's like they, they don't learn the skills to say, okay, I, I am going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Like, because they've never been exposed to anything that might actually be dangerous. 
And the other part of that is that um, playgrounds quickly become boring and then kids don't want to use them. And what do they do? They, they stay inside and play video games, which are always exciting. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., we have this tremendous problem of child obesity, and that is the direct result of children having fewer places that they want to play as well as fewer opportunities to play. And so that's when not only playground design but also urban planning kind of come into the mix. But it's also the the, the other aspect of the history of junk playgrounds is that historically they were supervised but not by parents. They were play workers that were at the playground to kind of step in um, when needed or to teach a child how to use a hammer if the child seemed to want that. But the relationship of the play worker to the child, is it's different than a parent and it's different than a teacher. And it's much more about giving the child space but staying aware so that you can swoop in if needed. But, but the default position is not to swoop in. It's just to be there as a resource. And I think that that is a kind of relationship to children and their play that seems very strange to many of us and that like more of us need to think about. Um, there's a great, there's a junk playground on Governor's Island now and there's a sign on it um, that, that basically is like, parents step away from the fence, go <laughs> sit down, like, you know, stop looking at your child. And it's just, it's so necessary. Just be like, take a step back, like we've got it. And it, I mean, it's partially, you know, American culture is very individualistic. And I think that makes parents feel as if nobody is going to take care of their child except them. But that is like a tremendous emotional burden. And it's important to be able to recognize when somebody else is willing to take over and to like let your child have that freedom. Yes, exactly. Because this is... Um yeah, that's something else that you write and that I found really interesting. It, to me, it, it um, echoes Richard Sennett a little bit. You, you write about the, the loss of urban skills. And you also write that this, the solution is not greater self-sufficiency, but group reliance. Could you, could you say something about that? Yeah, I feel like there's a way in which freedom for children could also become a commodity. You know, I think it already is in a sense that, you know, I'm sending my son for the first time to sleepaway camp this year. And like one of the joys of sleepaway camp is that you're in this remote setting and your parents aren't there and you become, you, you have to form this community, in his case, with other boys. And so I'm, I'm paying for him <laughs> to have freedom and separation from myself. And, you know, there's a long tradition of that. So I, I, don't, I don't have so much guilt about that. But, but, you know, not every child has a parent who can afford to send them to sleepaway camp. So how, how can we, you know, in, in our cities, in our communities, provide opportunities for children to safely step away from their parents and have their own experiences and, and form their own friendships? And part of that, I mean, I talk a lot about in my last chapter just about park design and street design and community design and trying to make connected spaces so that more parents feel comfortable letting their children have their own experience of the city. Because also in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this tremendous fear and panic over children being kidnapped that were like we're still sort of living under that dark spell in a way, even though the likelihood of that happening is vanishingly small. But the likelihood of a child being hit by a car is not vanishingly small. 
And so one of the things we need to talk about is how, you know, urban design forces children into this dependent position and how we might change the design of streets to make them safe for the most vulnerable among us and how, in fact, like those are the cities that we actually want. You know, there's this quote that it's said so often, it's kind of a cliche, and I feel like that means people don't think about it, but... But I do think it's true by Enrique Penalosa that if you design design the city for the child, it will be better for everyone. And it's true because what do children want? They want green space. They want space to be able to learn how to ride their bikes. They want to be able to, you know, walk to the corner store and get a popsicle. Like uh, these are all good things that adults want too. And if more children are able to do that, that means there will be more people on the street. There'll be more opportunities to create community. And so. To make a family-oriented city is not is not to make a sort of hostile city that's only safe for people with their giant strollers. It's actually to make a city that, that creates more of a sense of community for the people that live there. Great. You just answered my uh, my next question. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, about Peñalosa, about... Uh, yeah. Well, it is all connected. I mean, it, it's funny, you know, like my book has these different chapters, as you mentioned, and it, it goes up in scale from blocks to the city. Um but I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't want that, that structure to mean that it was siloed. And I hoped that people reading it could, like, their mind could jump and see how there were connections across the chapters. Because my, you know, that was all in my mind the whole time. But sometimes you don't want to spell everything out for your reader because that seems boring. I think it worked. Um, <laughs> because when you talk about schools, I also had to think about the urban, uh, urban scale and uh, playgrounds too, of course. Um, and so that, that's also why I said that it's very, all these interconnected topics and stories, I think it um, comes across very well. Um, throughout the book, you also highlight the different realities for, you know, white, well-off kids and those that do not fit this picture. And taking the example of, of Rotterdam's new family-focused housing policy, you write that the danger is that child-friendly becomes a proxy for middle-class friendly. Can you explain? Yeah, that was really interesting because I was doing my research and I was trying to find you know, cities that had actually put in place child-friendly or family-friendly planning policies. And Rotterdam had this policy um, enacted you know, in the past five years to make more family-friendly cities. And the policy talks a lot about street design and connectivity and how far um, houses should be from a public park and what a reasonable size for a family home should be. So, you know, I read this and I think, great. And then I start, you know, reading more online and I see that there has already been a critique of it, which then I also read. And I thought, oh, yes, this is interesting because the the critique is saying that there are already families living in some of the neighborhoods that they want to um, enact these family-friendly policies on, but they're not living in in homes that are specifically designed for families that that follow these rules. They are multi-generational families or they're immigrant families that have, you know, more children than you might be supposed to have in a two-bedroom. And those families also need more parks, also need more proximity to school and nice benches. But if a family-friendly policy means that you're going to kind of remove those lower-income families and immigrant families and build new housing, then you're only offering these family-friendly amenities to people who can afford new housing. And so 
for any of these family-friendly policies to be truly equitable, they you know they have to be done by the city without this real estate investment. You know, it, it can't be on the backs of real estate and new building. It has to be a retrofit of the existing structure that comes without displacement. And so, even with the good intentions and a discussion of elements that sound positive from a design point of view on the surface, you always have to think about displacement. Um, and this came up also in in the discussion of playgrounds, that you know a new park and new playgrounds um, can be such an asset to a neighborhood that they push up real estate values. And so they become not an amenity for the people that have lived there for 20 years, but an amenity for people that can move in and pay those higher prices. And so everyone that's working in this area just has to be really aware um, and think about how to prevent displacement so that, um, you know, all families can benefit equally from these things. Something else that I thought is that and after reading, reading the book, um, do you think that another, another challenge of our time is that uh, we have to make a transition from, from uh, the era of stuff to the era of sharing? Mm. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, there are lots of things that are labeled the sharing economy, but I actually feel like um, early parenthood is, a, at least in my experience, is a tremendous sharing economy. I mean, I, you know, you go through stuff so quickly. You know, it, it was stuff that kind of sparked me to write this book, like what is all this stuff coming into my house? But that stuff also flowed through my house because, you know, as soon as my kid outgrew his car seat, like I tried to find somebody else who had a baby of the right age to give that car seat to. Um, you know, my neighborhood has a listserv in which people sold, you know, a bag full of princess costumes for those two years where your daughter really, really needs to be a princess. And then, you know, when those two years are over in your house, you, you can sell them to the next person. You can give them to the next person. So I think they're actually is a great sharing economy for stuff for kids or not even economy, just sharing. Like I never charged anyone for anything. I just tried to pass it on because I felt like that was the flow. People had given me things, so I should just pass them on. But I do think that back to playgrounds, the American suburban model is for everyone to have their own climbing structure in their backyard sort of negating the need for a public playground, but also meaning that most kids are playing with, you know, one to two friends at a time. But it's fairly obvious that, like, everyone doesn't need to have a climbing structure. It's much better for the neighborhood to be focused around a park that has climbing structures of various sizes so that the family doesn't need to kind of size up when their children grow up. So the idea that we, we, I, as a middle-class parent, don't, don't need to own everything for myself but should... Um, pay my taxes so that I have shared amenities with my neighbors and things that are open for everyone to use is really important. And I think this comes up a lot also in terms of public education. You know, that if you have means, you should pay into the collective system so that everyone's children can benefit, not just your own children. Yeah, that's also something I was, I was slightly aiming at um, when I talked about sharing. It's about creating a certain commons, but it's also about maybe sharing domestic labor, about leisure, about, yeah, about space, basically. Yeah. I mean, I would I would love it. I, I don't talk so much about the communal kitchens, but the idea of the communal kitchen is so powerful. I think about it all the time. Um, 
why are we all making dinner in our houses every night? I mean, takeout takes part of that away, but it, it's not the same thing as those women were talking about. That was, you know, pay, paying in with your labor, um, cooking once a week, but knowing that there would be, you know, fresh food for families every night of the week. And obviously there are some places that have it. Um, in the U.S., there is a growing co-housing movement, which some of the co-housing communities do have communal kitchens. Um but again, it's like how many people benefit from that? And I guess one of the things that struck home for me in doing my research is just how many of these problems, I don't know, we've been trying to solve for 100 years and we still haven't solved them. I've, I've found the history of childhood to be incredibly cyclical. And sometimes I think people just really don't pay attention to history. I mean, education reformers today just constantly say, oh, the classroom hasn't changed in the past 100 years. And I feel like, okay, now I have a whole chapter in my book <laughs> and say, look, look at all these changes in the classroom. You're just ignoring them to make your rhetorical point so that venture capitalists will give you money. I mean, and, you know, what's the point of that? Who benefits from that? Yeah. If you, you say that um, many of these things are cyclical, and you, you were actually quite positive about many, many things from the 70s. So um, yeah. are you optimistic right now? I, I am optimistic. Even in the you know, three years since I've been working on the book, I've seen more and more other people and other organizations take up, you know, the quote from Enrique Penalosa, um, new adventure playgrounds being started in different cities. I, I feel like these topics are very much on the minds of um, smart people in America today, and that talking about children isn't thought to be minor in the same way that it you know, might have been 10 or 20 years ago. And so I guess I'm hopeful that, I mean, I'm always hopeful when I write a, you know, a piece of criticism that my work can be used by those people who are activists, who are on the ground to say, look, this is what we've been talking about. There is a historical basis for this and kind of use that as a wedge to make policy changes, to make design changes in cities. I feel like often the helpful thing that a critic can do is kind of give people a piece of journalism to point to and say, kind of, look, I'm not crazy. It's in the paper. It's on this blog. And I feel like there are probably, you know, a thousand different streams in my book that it could be helpful towards, you know, classrooms being one of them, junk playgrounds being another um, you know, street redesigns being another. And so, yeah, if I have a hope for a, for the book, it would be that other people would take it up and find it to be useful for their causes. It's like I'm a writer and not an activist, but I, I want to help. I want to help the activists. Yeah, well, I think you've provided a, a, a great resource for, uh, for positive future developments um, for children and for, for cities as a whole. So now, now the, the book is out and you're probably uh, going on a book tour and uh, doing all these things that come with uh, having a new book. What's, what's going to be your next project? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure yet. Um, but I will say that another feminist project that I'm interested in, based on my love of Mary Mecco, the Finnish company, is to write something about um, women and reform dress, and particularly the use of pockets 
Um, because again, it goes back to freedom. You know, a lot of women's clothing didn't have pockets, which meant that they had to carry bags or they had to have or or boxes or other things. And it was kind of a technological advancement when women got pockets in their clothing. And so I'm interested in clothes for different professions and different actions that have included pockets and how that gave women freedom at different points in the 20th century. That's great. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it reminds me of the um, of the um, the girl that you write about in the Lego advertisement. Yes. In the yeah, I love that little girl. Yeah, in the in the 1970s ad with her dungarees and her braids, and that is exactly what I looked like. I mean, I just I was a total tomboy. I always wore pants, mostly overalls, and so when I see that little girl and I see how different she looks then like the way we portray little girls now i think okay that you know that was a moment and we need to get back to something closer to that alexandra lang thank you for being on the podcast thanks so much for having me thanks for listening to the fourth episode of the field architecture podcast before we wrap up we'd like to thank a few people First of all, Alexander Lang for taking the time to talk to us. And Joshua McWhirler, our editor, who recorded this conversation in New York City. And of course, my field architecture fellows, Mark and Charlie, for uh, making this happen. <laughs>